Chapter Seventeen of The Women Who Make Our Novels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Women Who Make Our Novels by Grant Overton. Chapter Seventeen Helen R. Martin. A chapter on Helen R. Martin can hardly be anything but a prolonged interview or a pieced interview, somewhat like a patchwork quilt, constructed from talks of various persons with her at various times, and always on the same subject, her subject, the Pennsylvania Dutch. What there is to say about the writer and her work shall first be said. She is the daughter of the Reverend Cornelius Reimensneider, who came from Germany to accept a pastorate of Lancaster County, so the daughter was brought up among the Mennonites. She has written a novel every year or so for the last fourteen years, writing in the time left over after taking care of her home and her children, a boy and a girl, canvassing from suffrage and campaigning for socialism. Her home is in Harrisburg, the capital of Pennsylvania. Her first novel was not of the people among whom she had spent her life, but a romance of life as she would like it to be. Fortunately, it did not sell so she was led to look about her for her future material. She did not begin to write until she met Frederick R. Martin, to whom she was afterwards married. He is an instructor in music, and Mrs. Martin was herself a teacher. At one time she taught children in a fashionable private school in New York City. She knew the youngsters rather better than their parents. Mrs. Martin, like Marjorie Benton Cook and Harriet T. Comstock, is interested in social questions. She has decided views on bringing up children, wealth, and poverty. She does not subscribe to Mrs. Charlotte Perkins Gilman's view of motherhood. She is not a feminist in any general meaning of the word, because she believes that feminism in many of its aspects is a passing phase. As a rule, her preoccupation with these problems is kept out of her work. The older generation of the people she wrote about were blandly unaware that such questions reared their heads, but her last two novels, Gertie Schwartz, Fanatic or Christian, and Maggie of Virginsburg, introduced them extensively and disastrously. Mrs. Martin's failure with Gertie Schwartz arose entirely from her inability to assimilate such matter before writing her story. As a result, industrial conditions and employees' welfare are indigestible lumps in the novel. Some subjects cannot be introduced bodily into a piece of fiction. They must arise as they arise in life, out of situations and character. They cannot be discussed in a story as they are discussed from a platform. They can only act upon the people of the tale, or be acted upon by them. They can be discussed, if the representation of life is to be fairly accurate, only to the extent that the situations of the story call for. It is true that life contains many futile and windy discussions, some academic, some not. But the only things that count are those that involve action, or precipitate action, or express or mould character. The novelist must exclude all else, otherwise the novel will lack illusion, and resemble nothing so much as the minutes of the last meeting of the Society for the Suppression of Sociological Sores. Gertie Schwartz aside, the real controversy over Mrs. Martin's work arises from her studies of Pennsylvania Dutch life, and is of a sort to give satisfaction to her as a writer. 
for the very nature of the controversy carries with it the plain implication that she has got under the skin of her people it is alleged and deposed that she does not do the pennsylvania dutch justice the allegation was most completely made in the new york evening post for april twenty ninth nineteen sixteen by isaac r pennypacker briefly mr pennypacker declared that those who knew the pennsylvania dutch in a broader way than mrs martin's stories reflect them have never taken her pictures of the life very seriously george shock's hearts contending a novel repeatedly praised by william dean howells should be read as a corrective of mrs martin's tales elsie singmaster also has had a better understanding of the pennsylvania germans the moravians and the famous bethlehem bach choir are proof of pennsylvania german culture read whittier's poem the pennsylvania pilgrim he thought it better than snowbound but said the public would never find it out pennsylvania german troops did bravely in the revolution and civil war mrs martin admits that the pennsylvania dutch rise but it is ungracious of her to call attention to the lingering accent because americans speak french and german badly besides she does not cite all the instances of their rise to high station she refers to their unpolished manners but great men like dr johnson and edward m stanton seldom have nice manners mrs martin's curious comment on the fact that the pennsylvania dutchman's barn is larger than his house would be paralleled if she were to find it curious that mr wanamaker's department store is larger than his residence is it but how would mr pennypacker account for the fact that judge gary's house on fifth avenue is larger than his office at seventy one broadway a punctilious regard for good manners by which she sets such store would forever have prevented mrs martin from publishing her books because the portraits of the people in them are caricatures look out mrs martin some one sees resemblances in your caricatures there is the case against mrs martin and it is the highest compliment her work could have the next highest compliment is that minnie madern fisk made barnabetta into a play erstwhile susan and appeared herself in the title role and the next highest compliment is what richard watson gilder of the century once said to mrs martin your people do not converse on paper they talk when a community is written up that community always resents it even if it is described flatteringly you can't praise any community enough to satisfy its own conceit about itself so much for compliments if you call for proofs ask mrs martin to show you or read to you she won't allow them as a rule to be published some of the hundreds of letters she has received from pennsylvania germans wanting to know if so-and-so was the original of this character asking why such and such a person was put in your book complaining that she does not do justice to pennsylvania dutch good traits complaining that she does not do justice to pennsylvania dutch bad traits as stinginess and selfishness toward the women-folk praising her delineation of pennsylvania dutch life condemning her for her delineation of pennsylvania dutch life the truth is this as mrs martin says the pennsylvania dutch don't like my stories that is the educated descendants of the pennsylvania dutch don't like them the people of whom i write generally are people who read nothing not even newspapers except as one woman told me sometimes maybe the comic section 
but the Pennsylvania Dutch citizens of such places as Reading, Lancaster, Lebanon, Bethlehem, and other cities resent my commentaries upon the race from which they have risen. Overlooking the finer and lovable characters described in my books, they prefer to dwell upon the harsh people. I wish more of them would take comfort from Tilly, Mrs. Dreary, and the rest of my heroines. The only Pennsylvania Dutch who enjoy my stories seem to be those who have moved west, and to whom my books seem to come like a visit home. We think the reader of Mrs. Martin's novels will thank us if we forego a synoptic discussion of her tales, and give instead what she has to say, outside her books, about the people in them. It is a part of the common misconception that the Pennsylvania Dutch of whom I write are all Mennonites. Now, Mennonites are a religious sect, not a race or a nationality. I have written very little about Mennonites. They are as inoffensive and mild as the Quakers, and it is absurd to confound characters like Mrs. Dreary, of the play Erstwhile Susan, and her foster-son Jake, who are, of course, Pennsylvania Dutch, with the sect of Mennonites. Once a Pennsylvania Dutchman becomes a Mennonite, he gives over his harshness and other grievous faults, and leads a mild, gentle, and inoffensive life. Of course they are all very frugal and close, they never outgrow that. The Amishmen are set apart from the world by their hooks and eyes. They never wear buttons and buttonholes, because buttons and buttonholes are worldly. All of them wear the same sort of garb. The women fold kerchiefs over their shoulders and across the breast, so that their too seductive charms may not be revealed. I remember the suspicion with which Pennsylvania Dutch farmers and their wives would invariably regard me when, applying for a few days' board, I would confess to being a married woman, not even a widow. Why, then, was I going about without my husband? This made it harder for me to obtain board than if I had been an old maid. Where's her husband, anyhow? the farmer and his wife would speculate. Her out here alone, for three days yet, and him not showing his face. It's something awful funny. Then the wife would tell me how in twenty-five years of married life she had never yet spent a night away from her spouse. One morning, as I was sitting on the kitchen porch, writing to my husband, the farmer's wife bent over my shoulder to read what I was writing. Now that they're writing, she remarked, I can't read it so very good. I quickly laid the blotter on the page. I am writing to my husband, I said hastily, to let him know where I am. She stared at me. He don't know where you're at, she gasped. Well, I guess anyhow, then, which, being interpreted, meant, I should think it was about time. The following further account of these people is taken from a talk Joseph Gollum had with Mrs. Martin while she was in New York to see the opening of Mrs. Fisk in Erstwhile Susan. The interview, printed in the New York Evening Post of January 22, 1916, provoked Mr. Pennypacker's blanket indictment, which we have already recapitulated. You can tell the Pennsylvania Dutchman by his speech, even after he sheds his queer clothes and barbering and takes on the guise of the average American, explained Mrs. Martin. A bellboy in Allentown once disarmed my wrath with, Was you bellin' for me? I didn't hear it make. I knew him then as coming from my people. His father probably would say, cocking his weather eye, It looks for rain. I'm sure it's going to make something down. Or his mother, pricing at market, would ask, For what do you sell your chickens at? I want to wonder. I feel forgetting that fat one. 
your washerwoman with all the deference in the world will refer to your husband and hers does your charlie like his shirt ironed my mister don't enter cashtown virginsville or bird in the hand these are actual towns you'll see houses painted flagrant red or yellow or pink flower gardens gorgeous with color and there all the display or even trace of love of physical beauty stops the homes are immaculate but ugly the parlor is furnished at marriage then shut up for years most of the living is in the kitchen the barn is bigger than the house and is more modern than the kitchen that is because the pennsylvania dutchman is parsimonious with everything but the labor of his women he'll buy modern plows an automobile to take his products to market modern harness to save his horse up-to-dateness in the barn means more money in his pocket but he won't spend a cent to save his wife or his daughter a bit of work that is what they are for to work for the men folks in the kitchen or near it when a young man goes courting his eyes are not blinded with cupid's bandage they are wide open to note how the prospective bride qualifies as a frugal hard-working housewife i watched a young man studying three girls his object matrimony they were sewing and he made a test of their frugality by the way they tore off their threads the girl who tore off her thread closest to the stitch appealed to him most later he watched them at pie-making with another test in mind he asked each of them for the waste dough scraps one of the girls wanting to make a hit gave him generously the girl who had won in the first test scrimped a few crumbs for him and won his hand and heart soon after his foot was seen on the rocker of her chair as they talked which is pennsylvania dutch for i mean to marry this girl what has given them the passion for pinching their souls i don't know it may be a narrow and too literal interpretation of the bible for they are intensely religious in the orthodox sense the great majority of them sooner or later join one of the several religious sects mennonites dunkards amish or some other i feel to be plain they say and join one of the sects their word is as good as gold but they'll quibble with their word a grower will get his wife to water the tobacco leaf to make it weigh more did you water this tobacco the intending buyer asks the farmer no the farmer answers with literal truth but once he gives his literal word it is good to the last penny these people are without the sense of citizenship they don't think about it at all says mrs martin to an interviewer whose report of her was printed in the evening sun new york april seventh nineteen fifteen they have no problems and therefore they are contented with their lot they are wary of education they think it makes rogues look at those grafters in harrisburg they will say mrs martin once told a capital story of the amish this sect has a rule that any one who breaks a law of the meeting shall be penalized by living apart from his wife or in the case of a woman her husband denied even the solace of recrimination the wife of a particularly stingy member of the sect devised a cunning punishment for him by herself breaking one of the laws of the meeting i don't know what rule she broke mrs martin said it may have been sewing a button on her dress instead of a hook and eye or she may have advocated painting the house in any event her husband became an outcast unable even to speak to his wife i used this instance somewhat colored in a story 
the result was that i got a letter from an amish preacher informing me that if i would give him the name of the man who was so stingy to his wife the church would punish him properly of course i replied that the instance was purely fictitious to which the reply of the minister was that he could not understand why i wrote such lies about the sect introducing mrs martin a bright cheerful little bit of a woman at a bookseller's convention in new york william hard declared that she and margaret deland were like two large railroad systems each operating exclusively in its own territory by a tacit understanding mrs martin to accept a simile freights great quantities of valuable stuff and yields far better dividends than some of the big transcontinental lines books by helen r martin elusive hildegard her husband's purse his courtship warren hyde tilly a mennonite maid nineteen o four sabina a story of the amish nineteen o five the betrothal of eliphalate and other tales of the pennsylvania dutch nineteen o seven the revolt of anne royal nineteen o eight the crossways nineteen ten whither half gods go nineteen eleven the fighting doctor nineteen twelve the parasite nineteen thirteen barnabetta nineteen fourteen for a mess of pottage nineteen fifteen martha of the mennonite country nineteen fifteen those fitzenbergers nineteen seventeen gertie schwartz fanatic or christian nineteen eighteen maggie of virginsburg nineteen eighteen mrs martin's books are published by doubleday page and company new york and the century company new york end of chapter seventeen